On behalf of CHEST, I would like to welcome you all to the September 2019 podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the editor of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a very interesting conversation on the determinant of depressive symptoms at one year after ICU discharge. Uh, today, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Mika Hamilton as our guest, and I'll allow her to introduce herself. Hi there. So uh, thank you so much for having me on this podcast and um, giving me the opportunity to discuss this paper. So as you said, my name is Mika Hamilton. Um, I uh, trained in intensive care medicine and anesthesia over in the United Kingdom. And I relocated to Toronto in Canada uh, around four years ago and to pursue some further training in those specialties. And my overall uh, research interest is in the human response to stressful events. Great. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, Mika. So your paper was recently published in CHEST in the September 2019 issue, and it dealt with survivors who had more than seven days of mechanical ventilation, and you investigated depressive symptoms at one year. Maybe you could tell us why you performed your study. Yes, so um, when I, uh, so I'll give you a little anecdote. Um, so when I was a first-year anesthesia trainee, this would be around 2007, I was uh, on an intensive care unit and um, a patient who had been there for a few weeks, and unfortunately I cannot remember what his initial um, pathology was, but he'd been on the ICU for a few weeks and had been discharged to the wards. Um, he came back a few weeks later um, with his daughter just to come back and say thank you to the nurses and to the staff for looking after him. Um, when he came onto the intensive care unit, he seemed very happy, um, well in himself, you know, pleased to, to see everyone. Uh, and when he was on the unit, one of the alarms on one of the monitors started to ring and he became visibly distressed. Um, very upset and asked his daughter to take him out of the unit. Um, it turned out that he'd been having nightmares, um, flashbacks, you know, um, very stressful memories about his time on the ICU. And that was the point at which I sort of realised I was a first-year trainee at this point, so my thoughts before that had very much been, okay, patients come to the ICU, they're very sick, they go off to sleep for a couple of weeks, we make them better, or not, unfortunately, um, and, and they leave the ICU, and that's basically the end of it. So when I saw the reaction that this man had to hearing this alarm, I was really interested in that. I thought, wow, this is, this, there's a lot more going on here than I've sort of recognised. So that was when my interest first started in this subject. And then um, around the middle of my anaesthesia training, I started to attend ICU follow-up clinics. I had the benefit of working with our staff who also had um, a, a very strong interest in following up these patients after the discharge. And I noticed that some patients would come to clinic and would have, unfortunately, similar psychological sequelae. They would have had nightmares. Um, they'd be feeling depressed, feeling low energy, um, some, you know, sort of showing signs of uh, potential post-traumatic stress disorder from their time on the ICU. Um, and others had come back to clinic who didn't appear to have these things in clinic, although it's, you know, possible we didn't spot them during a 45-minute appointment, but we're very much like, yes, you know, it was a stressful time and I was very sick, but I'm just very glad to be home now and I'm getting on with my life and things are okay, so... That was when I also started to think about, well, why do some people have um, a response um, which affects their mental health to being critically ill and some don't? 
so that's when my interest around that part was peaked. So when I um, came over to Toronto to do my fellowships, um, I was advised by many people to speak to Dr. Margaret Herridge about this. Um, she is the, um, one of the leads of the Recover program, which looks at ICU outcomes, um, sorry, uh, outcomes following a stay on the ICU. Um, so I actually spoke to her about my theories, um, and I knew that she had a large database of information um, from follow-up of, of critically ill patients. So we decided to go through the information to see if we could find any associations, basically as to which patients would have um, a mental health sequelae and which patients didn't. So that's my sort of personal story around why I performed this study. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. And I think it's really important for the, our chess trainees, uh, the, the importance of reflecting on personal experiences and using those experiences to, um, uh, to define further research opportunities. So how did you perform your study, and uh, how does it differ from prior studies on the same topic? So basically we performed the study, so um, we took information which was already available, very luckily for me, um, from a pre-existing data set. So basically the RECOVER program um, is a Canadian multi-centre collaboration um, with the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group. Um, and it, it focuses on creating um, sort of patient and family-centred practice standards to improve care following critical illness. So the Recover Group had already completed one study, um, which was the phase one of the Recover Program, and it was looking at different groups of patients who'd been critically ill to basically stratify their risk for disability at one year post-ICU. So patients were discharged from the ICU, and this was patients after seven days of mechanical ventilation um, who didn't meet any of the exclusion criteria detailed in the paper. And they were followed up at day seven, uh, and then at three, six, and 12 months after their ICU discharge. And there was a whole range of uh, information captured from these patients and their caregivers as well, surrounding physical function, um, mental health, um, uh, potential uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression scores, um, independence and activities of daily living. Um, so this information was actually all available for us to look at and nobody had looked yet at the link between um, the depressive symptoms that were captured at 3, 6 and 12 months post-discharge and uh, other patient and caregiver factors. So we looked to see what data we had available because obviously we were constrained by the data that was already available in this data set. Um, and also through a sort of review of the literature um, and other previous potential associations that have been identified. And we, we, made, we came up with some sort of a priori hypothesis. So we thought that um, associations with worse depressive symptoms after your ICU stay may be associated with age and sex, um, because we've seen that from the previous literature, um, income, um, your functional status post-discharge as well, so your dependence and activities of daily living, um, your comorbidity scores, and also we wanted to look at whether your caregiver could have an outcome on your mental health post-ICU discharge. Because we've, we know that um, caregiver outcomes and caregiver health can affect the recovery of patients. Um, that's from the stroke literature. And we had previously, well, the recovery program had previously looked to see whether patient factors could affect caregiver health. 
They didn't find an association there, but we hypothesised that perhaps the health of the caregiver looking after the patient could affect the patient's mental health post-ICU discharge. So we looked at caregiver, uh, caregiver outcomes as well. So that was caregiver depression scores and also the level of assistance that the caregiver was having to provide um, to their patient um, after discharge. Um, so we had all these factors um, that we had hypothesised. Um, basically then with the help of our excellent statistician, um, we performed some log logistic regression um, and used some mixed modelling to basically assess associations between your BDI2 score, which is the Beck Depression Inventory Score, and that measures, it looks at 21 different um, sort of factors related to potential depression, such as fatigue, feelings of guilt, hopelessness, um, activity, um, to associate those scores between these patient and caregiver factors at three, six, and 12 months to see if we could find any associations there. Great, that's a really um, excellent overview. So what were your primary findings? So our primary finding, which was um, higher depression scores, so you had a higher BDI2 score, um, was associated with reduced functional status after your ICU discharge, and this was present throughout the three, six, and 12-month follow-up. So basically what this means is if the patient um, was more dependent in their activities of daily living, um, so we use the uh, functional independence measure, which looked at things like can you wash yourself, can you dress yourself, can you manage your medications, can you go up and down stairs. So patients who were more functionally dependent had higher depression scores. So that was one of our main findings. We also found that patients who had less income um, and less education as well were also statistically more likely to have higher depression scores. And interestingly, we also found a clear curvilinear relationship too with age. So we've, we found that our patients who were aged between 45 to 50 had um, higher BDI2 scores as well. So those are really interesting findings. Yeah. How did you interpret them? Um, so, in, so interpreting them has been um, a very interesting uh, discussion <laughs> with our group. So, the, the, so our main finding was the, the association with function, which we, I mean, we found that really interesting, but it's also really difficult to interpret because um, it can be... You, your association between your physical function and your, your mental health can be a bi-directional relationship. And it's very hard to tease out which is causing which, you know. Um, are you less active because you're feeling depressed and you have low energy? Or are you feeling depressed and you have low energy because you aren't able to be active? Or is there a little bit of both contributing to that in a sort of a vicious cycle? So we know that we know that depression um, in non-ICU patient groups is associated with inactivity. Um, that's through um, an inflammation theory, um, and we also know that to undertake physical activity and action, we need motivation, which may be lacking if you have poor mental health. And, you know, if you if you're waking up in the morning, you're feeling low, you're not particularly wanting to get out of bed. You're not really going to be wanting to get up and do an exercise program, you know. But at the same time, if you are were previously quite fit and active or previously, you know, reasonably functionally independent and suddenly you are not as physically active as you were because of your, your um, episode of critical illness, that is also going to 
potentially affect your mental health. So it's very hard to tease out which one is causing which, and we've had lots of discussions around this. And really our um, sort of approach to this is, okay, we don't exactly know which causes which, but they're both very important to the patient, you know. So let's just focus on it in a more sort of holistic approach, you know, looking at the overall picture. They're both stressful and distressing to patients. So maybe we just try and treat both and see if we can make both better without trying to sort of pick out exactly which which is causing which. So that will that may lead on to discussion in a little while with you about um, sort of rehabilitation strategies. Well, um, we can actually yeah. jump into that now. So, I mean, the question is, like, what would be modifiable or what can we change? Um, as you said at the beginning of the podcast, we tend to think that after we've discharged our patients from the ICU that they're doing a lot better, but there's a lot that they're going through in the subsequent year. So is there anything that we could do um, during the ICU stay um, or after the ICU stay that could relieve uh, these obviously very devastating uh, symptoms? So um, during the ICU stay, so there we haven't, we don't have any physical rehabilitation studies yet showing a clear um, improvement in overall patient outcomes post ICU. But there is some literature to suggest that um, during ICU, um, so while the patient's still on on the unit and then perhaps still in hospital as well, that physical rehabilitation does lead to improved muscle strength uh, post discharge. So it may be worth starting to try and perhaps focus more on whether in ICU exercise um, leads to improved uh, physical function and also potentially um, psychological outcomes um, post uh, discharge. So that would be one direction for um, our, our research strategies to go um, in the future is um, focusing more on um, uh, rehabilitation during ICU, but also focusing on not just the physical function after discharge, but also the mental health function as well. It may also be worth to try and focus a bit more on sort of mental rehabilitation as well, whilst the patient's on ICU and in the uh, time coming up to discharge home. And from our study, we've managed to kind of tease out a few groups who are at higher risk of, um, of poor mental health post-discharge. So we could think about sort of risk stratifying and perhaps targeting these groups um, prior to discharge um, and even just bringing up this in conversation when patients are getting ready to go home um, and particularly with their families as well, is just to really bring this up as a discussion to tell patients that, you know, it is not unusual to, to feel depressed, to feel low when you get home. You know, life has probably changed very much for you. Start bringing it up more in conversation to screen these patients so that perhaps we can start interventions earlier rather than later. We could also um, be uh, using this information and using information from screening of patients um, to inform for their follow-up as well. So to um, communicate with their family doctors when they go home, um, to communicate with the, the you know the, the specialties who will be looking after them um, when they go home, um, to basically let them know that we need to keep. Although you know depends what system um, has has failed, which has, has led to their ICU stay or, or whatever other medical follow up they may need, but also to make everybody aware that mental health follow up is really important too. Um, and I think it also um, perhaps raises another argument for increased availability of ICU follow-up clinics as well. 
Um, although this is a, you know, again, we don't have any clear evidence to show that it's beneficial yet, and there's issues around funding and who's going to provide the care in the IC follow-up clinics. It may be worth thinking about, you know, who's actually taking responsibility for the overall picture of the patient. You know, they may come out of hospital and they need um, cardiac follow-up or they need uh, gastrointestinal follow-up, but there's a lot of sequelae that comes out of having been on the ICU for a long time and um, who's best informed to take over the responsibility of that as well. You, you mentioned that you do have uh, an ICU follow-up clinic. Um, what does your uh, clinic involve and um, what can uh, patients uh, look to benefit from? Yeah, so when I, I was attending ICU follow-up clinics when I was um, in the United Kingdom um, and I was training there. So we actually had, um, so the Nas National Institute for Clinical Excellence, NICE, um, released a guideline recommending that all ICU patients be followed up at three months. Um, they actually chose three months because that's the ideal time to pick up patients who have developed post-traumatic stress uh, disorder. The issue with ICU follow-up clinics is time um, and funding. <laughs> so actually, when I was um, I was at, uh, attending ICU follow-up clinics with a consultant called Dr. Cantley, who works in England, and she was actually running these clinics in her own time. Um, funding uh, was uh, difficult because obviously there's a lot of competing interests. Um, everybody needs funding for everything, so trying to put a business case through to get funding for clinics in the United Kingdom at least was difficult um, and uh, unfortunately there was not funding for our clinic so my consultant was actually running this clinic in her own time. Um, wow. she, yeah, with a, with a, um, she was using a, a clinic room and um, basically having to sort of follow up patients herself and type up letters herself which is not really an ideal situation when you're a busy, a busy ICM consultant. However, most of the patients, uh, we actually did a little survey of the patients who attended clinic. Most of the patients found it useful. Um, uh, a significant amount of patients um, were able to gain information from us that um, no one else was really able to explain to them because, um, you know, we, we're more familiar with what happens in an ICU. So even just things like, you know, why am I having these uh, strange dreams? <laughs> you know, why am I having nightmares about being trapped in a box? Why do I have these uh, scars on my wrist? Um, why do I have this memory of, you know, uh, this, that and the other? Things that perhaps folks who are, are not specialised in ICU may not be able to answer easily um, if you haven't spent um, time training on an ICU. So we were also able to um, uh, refer patients on. So if, when a patient came to the clinic who looked to be um, suffering from uh, a mental health problem, we were able to refer them on to psychiatry and then also to communicate back with their general practitioner as well um, around the potential support from a mental health point of view as well that the patient may need in the future. It's, that would be slightly problematic in, in Canada at the moment because um, I'm not sure about the data for the USA, but around 16% of patients in Canada don't have a family doctor right now. Um, which is another big issue. Um, but we really need to be thinking about who's following these patients up long term um, after their stay on an ICU. Definitely. And in your discussion, you mentioned um, the fact that this was an association study, so a lot of times you didn't have any pre-morbid uh, data 
uh, prioritized to you. So um, maybe you could comment on the fact uh, of, of what role pre-mortal depression would have played. And also, um, it's known that um, low income and low education mm -hmm. can sometimes serve as a surrogate for mental illness. Uh, maybe you could comment on those two points, which I think you alluded to in your discussion. Yes, of course. So, um, the, so, the, so it's thought that up to a third to around 40% um, in, the, in the literature of ICU patients have depression post-discharge now. Um, the uh, prevalence in the general population in the Western world is anywhere between around 8 to 12%, which is recorded data. Um, our prevalence um, in our study uh, was um, overall um, around 26% of patients at some point over the 12-month follow-up had a BDI2 score suggesting moderate depressive symptoms. Um, so we took that as a significant threshold. So two things to say about that. So first of all, as you say, we didn't have data available for the patient's pre-admission uh, mental health. We excluded patients who'd had a previous admission for psychiatric reason, um, but not patients who were being um, perhaps treated or even untreated for uh, depression or anxiety. So we don't know if the scores post-discharge, uh, um, post-ICU stay were higher than usual. Saying that, though, as I said, the general population scores uh, risk is around 8 to 12 percent. But in some other studies, there was a study in psychosomatics which showed that around a quarter of patients prior to ICU admission um, were, had been diagnosed with depression. Um, so this is very interesting. And it also, I mean, it suggests that there's, you know, there's obviously big differences in capturing data. But it also suggests that possibly patients who have depression or, or other um, mental health problems may actually be more at risk um, of an ICU admission because of the overall um, health picture that's associated with that. So, then, um, yeah. yeah. No, go ahead. Um, and then with regards to the, um, so you, you talked about the uh, income and the education link. So that, so patients with less income and less education um, separately and together had higher um, depression scores. But um, we also see that in other patient populations. So um, patients with, for example, diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease are more likely to be in this group that have less income and education. And that can be due to sort of overall um, inequities in care. Um, again, these patients may be the ones who are more likely to not have a family doctor. Um, potential financial worries and financial strain. So financial strain is known to have a link with depression. Um, not having as much mastery um, over your life if you have less income than others others would. So this, this finding was reflective of the general population, but again, it raises a lot of um, discussion points around um, equity of care. Definitely. Um, I wanted to change the topic slightly to um, what the role of antidepressants are uh, in your practice in terms of um, during the ICU stay or following uh, hospital discharge. Um, obviously, those patients who have a depression beforehand uh, may need antidepressants during their stay, but those who aren't known with um, depression, do you start them on antidepressants, and how do you make that decision? Yeah, so we, we didn't have the, that data available from our data set. There's a few things I would like to have looked at that perhaps we can discuss a little later that um, wasn't available from this data set. 
Um, I would say, so, so, well, I would say sort of anecdotally during my time um, on ICU is um, we will start antidepressants if we feel it's justified. We'll generally um, ask for a psychiatry consultation at that point as well. Um, what we do know is that the, the, it's usually a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor that we will start and the sort of time to effect is approximately six weeks. Um, I would say it's not something we do routinely, um, but if the nursing staff or medical staff or family are picking up, the patients are seeming to sort of lack energy, lack vitality on the ICU, particularly when it's impeding their um, rehabilitation on the ICU, then we will start antidepressants. But I think that would be a really good um, uh, avenue of study to look at in the future, is identifying these patients that appear to be depressed. Um, how many of them are actually being started on antidepressants and whether, in fact, this is making uh, an overall difference to the patient's mental health um, and overall physical health during and after their ICU stay. Uh, there is also um, a, a problem um, that's been identified in some literature as well that um, a lot of patients have their who are previously on antidepressants actually have their antidepressants stopped while they're on the ICU, be it through just from uh, pure remission or um, due to potential um, interactions with other medications. So I think that's just something really important to just remember to focus on um, to make sure that we're continuing patients' um, sort of, uh, psychiatric medications in conjunction with pharmacy advice, just to make sure that we're not... Um, a, putting patients through withdrawal, particularly from SSRIs, but also um, we're not stopping their established treatment that they may have been on for quite a period of time. Oh, definitely. So, Mika, you mentioned um, uh, that there were some things you maybe would have wanted to change in your study, and we all know that there's no such thing as a perfect study, that <laughs> with the, the benefits of uh, reflection and looking back, we say, oh, maybe I could have done this a bit better. So, with yeah. hindsight, what would you have changed uh, in your study, and what should future studies focus on uh, in their study design and aims? So, um, as I mentioned, so we were working from a sort of pre-existing data set, so we, we, we used as much information as we could that was available, but what I would have really liked to have seen first of all, and as you've mentioned, is um, whether the patients pre-admission had um, de known depression, um, whether on or off antidepressants, and also clearer information around their functional status so that we could actually see for sure whether there were changes uh, post-discharge. Um, we do know that our, around 50% of our patients prior to admission were employed in um, full or part-time employment. And although um, it's perhaps conjecting a little, we did uh, make the assumption that that suggested a reasonable functional baseline. But again, we don't have um, solid data around that pre-admission. So that would be one thing I would love to see, because then we could look at changes post-discharge, and we could also um, trajectory model as well. I would also really um, love to see some data from what happens in the ICU also. For example, um, use of restraints, um, the choice of medications that we use, um, particularly for sedation, so um, the use of benzodiazepines, um, opiates, um, and also level of sedation during the ICU as well to see whether that has any effect on their post-ICU psychological outcomes. 
Um, also looking at things like um, communication to the patient and the family throughout the ICU stay, um, would that be a protective factor for patients? Um, whether there is availability of ICU follow-up as well, um, to see whether that also helps. And also to look at what the sort of culture of exercise and physiotherapy is on the ICU that the patient is. So that goes back a little bit to what I was talking about before around in-ICU rehabilitation. So do we have um, physiotherapists um, who are getting our patients up and out of bed, whether they're ventilated or not? Um, uh, and whether that is, um, I've worked on some ICUs where that's uh, very much the norm and others where it's not. And that is usually due to um, basically availability of resources, you know. And do you have enough nursing staff? Do you have enough physiotherapy support available to try and take every patient for a walk every day? So I'd really love to see if there's any links there um, between the, um, exercise and physio and uh, mental health outcomes as well. I mean, there's a whole host of things you could you could look at. Um, you know, open versus closed visiting hours. Um, use of steroids during the ICU stay. Um, I think there's a, a huge amount of information we could look at here. I would also, uh, yeah. No, go ahead. Um, so I would also, um, not just from our our study, um, what would I change, but I think also from a rehabilitation point of view, um, I would also love to see more data on re rehabilitation post-ICU. I know it's a focus of interest at the moment. Um, there's been a few, um, few excellent papers published, but um, nothing so far has shown a really solid link between post-ICU rehabilitation and long-term improved outcomes. Um, there was the Revive paper that was published uh, a couple of years ago, which uh, looked at a six-week exercise program uh, post-ICU stay, which did find that um, readiness to exercise was improved that six months. Um, but as the authors suggested, perhaps we need to be looking at longer periods of rehabilitation, um, longer than six weeks. Um, also, whether rehabilitation is um, better when it's individualized or whether, which is obviously great for the patient, or whether it should be performed as part of a group, which is excellent for motivation, and also whether we should be doing, um, as mentioned before, mental health or rehabilitation as well, so making sure that there's that psychological support, um, focus on cognitive behavioral therapy, um, um, involving our, our psychiatric colleagues as well in rehabilitation too, and also seeing whether the physical side affects the mental side and vice versa, so looking at it as more of a holistic approach. Perfect. I think that's a really great overview for any aspiring uh, clinician who wants to do research on this very important topic, uh, to just go through what you've just said over the last couple of minutes and, and work mm -hmm. on those uh, projects. Um, so. How does your study advance our understanding on depressive symptoms after ICU discharge, and how do you think it's going to influence our practice uh, in the coming years? So I think um, so. Our study has really um, established uh, a strong link between the physical function and um, uh, mental health after ICU discharge. Um, we showed that um, the uh, your independence and activities of daily living is statistically significantly associated with um, your mental health scores. So, um, but as mentioned, it's very hard to delineate which which is the cause of which. So, I think this. 
advances our understanding um, in a sort of overall picture point of view that um, we need to be aware that physical function and mental health are interlinked and we need to be focusing on those as a whole, perhaps not just focusing on the physical rehabilitation and or the mental rehabilitation, but as the whole picture. Um, also, for future uh, studies as well, um, I think we'd, we just need to be really thinking more about the overall picture of the patient after they go home. It's great when we when patients recover from their ICU stay and, and you know the the illness that they presented with has been treated and the patient gets to go home. But we focus a lot on patients' quality of life and what they want um, from their life when we're making decisions around. Um, ICU care. So I think we really need to be focusing on their quality of life after they go home as well. Um, you know, are they are they back at work? Are they enjoying life? Is, is this what they would be wanting from their life? Um, and also we need to be focusing on their family too. Um, so it, this just isn't just affecting if the patient goes home and has a psychological sequelae from their ICU stay. This doesn't just affect the patient. This also affects all those around them too, their family, um, people that they work with. So I, I think I've used the word holistic quite a lot here, but I, I really feel that it's, um, this is quite important. Oh, it definitely is, Mika. Yeah. And I just want to thank you so much uh, for joining us because you've given us really deep insights onto a very important topic um, that we probably don't pay enough attention to. As we draw to the end of this podcast, I just wanted to give you an opportunity uh, to maybe mention something that we haven't discussed or, or, or something that you prepared on for the talk that we haven't covered as yet, um, and, and if you wanted to share that with the, the chess community. Um, I think we've had quite a detailed discussion, actually. So we have, I am. Oh, actually, no. If I'll ask you one question, if you don't mind. So I sure. would. Um, we talked around um, the uh, association with age and depressive symptoms. So in our study, we found that those patients who were aged between 45 and 50 had the higher um, BDI2 scores. Um, and that is, again, it's reflective of the general population. We know that those aged around 40 to 60 are uh, more at risk of depression. Um, and I'd just, uh, I'd really like to hear um, what your thoughts are around why this might be. I've had a few discussions around this with colleagues um, at various talks and meetings. Um, we have oh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, we've postulated yeah. a few things, but uh, yeah. I wondered if you had any thoughts on why this uh, might be a risk. Yes, it was curious because I've actually got that written down on my piece of paper and I've got a big asterisk <laughs> next to it because I also found that pretty intriguing. And yeah. um, I took a sneak peek at your discussion, and I definitely agree with the theory that um, it's around those people who are trying to find meaning in their life. Mm -hmm. um, they've had the opportunity to, uh, you know, get a career together, and they're at that set point where they're going to either launch off and uh, say, you know, my life is meaningful, I've done great things, and I've, I've, I've brought meaning to this world. And this is a critical period where if they lose that um, either recognition or uh, purpose, uh, that they feel that maybe my life isn't uh, what it could have been, I could have done more. So that's kind of how um, I interpreted it. And uh, the, the, what did your colleagues uh, uh, think? Um, so 
so we know that generally people of older age are, are generally happier, um, and there is also some potential of survivor bias as well. Like we know that patients, uh, people <laughs> who are happier live longer, so a bit of survivor bias may have translated through to our data. But um, some of the postulations that um, our group came up with was um, that at mid middle age, um, potentially you have less earning potential following critical illness. So perhaps more likely to not be able to get back to work or basically you're going to have less time at work to um, to make money, which then induces the financial strain, which we know is a contributor to depression. Also, my thoughts as well were that in, in that sort of age range, you may be more likely to have dependents. So that could be children or it could be your parents as well who um, perhaps you're supporting. Um, and that would be more likely to for than from someone of a younger age or from an older age. So you may have, again, more of that um, worry around financial strain and, you know, how am I going to look after my family if I'm too ill to work? Um, so that was just one of the other, um, again, completely postulated, but that was a potential contributor that, that we saw. Definitely, they're definitely interesting and intriguing, and um, hopefully we'll be able to get an answer to that question in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I want to say a very big thank you uh, to Dr. Mika Hamilton for a really great conversation. Um, I've learned a lot, and I've really appreciated you taking the time to share with our chest audience um, your very interesting paper. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is the Chess Podcast. Thank you. <laughs>